This week's episode is brought to you by ArtyWater.com, a light, refreshing, nutritious beverage with extracts of apple, lemon, and mint to highlight the earthy flavor of the artichoke with a touch of monk fruit for sweetness. To learn more about Arty, visit ArtyWater.com. Every drop says, Party with Arty. Hello and welcome to YHTV's nominated show, Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 100. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me, celebrating here in the studio, is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. What's up, Doc? <laughs> <laughs> Talk about celebrating. Uh, yes, it's a, it's a cool day for celebration. It's our 100th show. It is. Thinking back when we started our very first show, we were already looking forward to our 100th show. And here we are. Yeah, here we are. (laughs) Very good today. And now uh, we'll get over our celebration and get right into our 200th show. (laughs) That's where we're moving. (laughs) Greetings, everybody. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your host along with Christina today as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy searching for optimal health. And today we're going to be in a very unique quadrant. We're going to be speaking with Dr. Sharon Hartline, who is a professor of philosophy and teaches ethics at Radford University in Virginia. But before we do that, Christina, any uh, tidying up? Uh, Tidying up. (laughs) Well, (laughs) um, at any time during the show, feel free to ask a question, make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Now, if you are listening to this on any audio device uh, as a podcast, uh, you can actually just call in at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. We'll be sure to get your question or comment over to our special guest or to Dr. Woolman um, and leave us, by, leave us your contact information and they'll get right back to you. So thank you so much, Glenn. Thanks, Christina. You know, as I said, uh, 100th show and we go into many quadrants out there in the healthcare galaxy. We've talked about uh, specific diseases. We've talked to specialists of all kinds. And uh, I thought today would be for, very interesting for our show to speak about something that a lot of people don't speak about, but it's probably one of the most important parts of the practice of medicine, and that's ethics mm. and what that means to people. And I thought there would be no better person for us to speak with than Dr. Sharon Hartline. So let me introduce uh, Dr. Hartline and say that as she is a full professor uh, in philosophy, She teaches uh, ethical theory, applied ethics, bioethics, and she's also a consultant for a nearby medical center for their very important ethics committee. She's going to be telling us a lot more about that. She has some research interests, and and I know one of the things that a lot of our listeners will like will be her interest in, of course, ethical theory and uh, Buddhism and ethics. Hmm. So without further ado... I would like to introduce and welcome to all of our viewers, Sharon Hartline. Welcome, Sharon. Hello, Hello Thank Sharon. You. Thank Hi, you, Christina. F- thank you for honoring us today on our hundredth episode. <laughs> Very exciting, and congratulations! Thank you Excellent. so much. Thank you, Sharon. As the uh, medical guide, I always like to give our viewers a path that we're potentially going to be taking. So one of the things that we're going to doing at first is to get to know a little bit about you, 
then I want to talk a little bit about morals and ethics and what's the importance of, of knowing this and having an awareness. And then I want to get into some actual specific things that, that ethics does within the field and practice of medicine. How's that sound to you? That sounds wonderful. Go for it. Okay. Well, I'm going to ask you to go for it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so before before we talk about this, you know, I I mentioned that you're a full professor, and many times we have people on the show that have a professor status, uh, where there are many different types of professors. People hear the word professor; it could be an associate professor, a visiting professor, uh, a number of things. But a full professor is something that I want you to tell us about a little. So in your opening remarks telling us how you got to where you are today and what interested you there, and a little bit about what it means to be a full professor. Okay. Well, originally, when I went to Villanova University in the 80s, I was actually a theater major, and I wanted to be an actress in New York on Broadway. And about oh, halfway through my college career, that cycle between the... Um, audience and the actor, it just kind of fell apart. And I said, uh-oh, what am I going to do now? <laughs> so I looked at my curriculum and I had been studying philosophy for years, right? I kept taking course after course. And I said, I really, I really love this. Um, I also was fortunate enough to have two wonderful mentors as an undergraduate, Lon and Deb Winston. And Lon was my advisor at, in the theater department. And he really taught me that when you find something you love, just go and do it get it done. And I've lived that way since I've met him. Um, Debbie was also an important mentor because she taught me the love of teaching. So she took me to her classes. And what I loved about teaching was that, in, yes, in part, you teach people. But really what you do is you're a facilitator for people to teach themselves and teach each other. And so I was so excited with that facilitation process that she was doing and decided I wanted to do that. So I went to graduate school at SUNY at Stony Brook. I got a PhD, which is a requirement for moving on uh, through this system, the academic system, as it were. Um, and there I met Anthony Weston, who is a, just a remarkable human being. He is a um, ethicist. He does a lot of pragmatism, a lot of practical, ethical uh, theory, but what he does is to try and find better problems. He says, we, we basically, um, we, what's the word I'm looking for? We, we're basically content with the problems we have, which aren't very good problems. So let's, let's make better problems in the world. So those are the people that sort of got me into philosophy and ethics and then the teaching piece. And so at SUNY at Stony Brook, I studied, um, there, I guess ultimately it was about seven or eight years. There were some breaks in there, but I got my PhD in philosophy. I focused in ethics. I um, wrote my dissertation on battered women and their ethical decision making, which again was a very practical issue. Um, I worked at a battered women's shelter at the time. So that experiential hands-on piece has always been really important to me. Um, when I got to Radford about 20 years ago, I was an assistant professor, and that's somebody that has their PhD, comes into a university, and after a six-year period, you basically go up for tenure, and tenure is a uh, basically a decision that your department, your chair make, your college makes, and ultimately it means that if you don't 
really screw up, you have a job for life, okay? <laughs> Unless they get rid of your department. Um, but basically what it says is that your colleagues recognize that you are proficient in teaching, you are proficient in your area of expertise, and you serve the university and the community in which you're in. Um, a full professorship occurs about six years later, and basically what they want to see is sort of continuing progress in all of those different areas. So you have um, perfected teaching. I don't know if perfection is quite the right word, but again, your teaching has um, continued, continued to be good. Your uh, areas of interest in research have continued, your publishing, and ultimately you're working at deeper levels within the university and the community. So a full professor is about, it's sort of like as far as you can go in the academic system before getting into administrative work, which I have tried to stay away from. <laughs> I've tried to stay in the classroom as much as possible because that's, that's really what I love to do. Sometimes I say uh, philosophy is an excuse to teach. And in some ways it is, right? In some ways it really is an excuse to go into the classroom and work with people. So does that answer your question? I think it does, and it's a good start for us. I like the idea right away of figuring out better problems. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's, a, that's a great thing. So yeah. um, I want to start getting into, thank you for sharing your uh, life goals and journey with us in that aspect, but now we want to take advantage of the knowledge that you have. And okay. what I want to do, uh, I know that as a full professor, you're probably used to having students for a, for a full semester or a long period of time, and you can mm -hmm. teach them over a long period of time. But I, what I'd like to do today, very uniquely, we only have one hour, and even though that hour is going to last a lifetime once it becomes virtual, uh, I want to imagine that you and Christina and I are in an emergency department, and we're going to okay. spend the whole hour in an emergency department so all the things that you're going to be teaching us today are, are going to be within the realm of we only have a just, you know, to get, we'll, we'll use your Buddhism to get to the very essence of all of the questions we have. Because I know okay. you, could, you could probably talk for an hour on every topic and that would be wonderful for us. But we have a lot of topics and I want to go forward. So first thing, okay. let's talk about the difference between morals and ethics? We hear those two words. Mm -hmm. Well, morals are the belief systems that we have. They are the um, values that are transmitted from our parents, from our culture, from our church, right? They're basically the values that we live by, the norms we live by. Ethics is a process whereby you reflect upon belief systems using certain kinds of tools and ultimately establish whether or not you want to keep that belief, right? So there's a, I believe that everybody with morals somewhere along the way has done ethics, right? We're, we're reflective by nature, right? But ultimately that reflection, that questioning, that evaluation of your value system, that's the ethics piece. Yeah. Excellent. So now we also talk about in your programs, bioethics, and medical ethics, are they different? I see medical ethics as a subset of bioethics. So medical ethics, as I understand it, is more geared towards professional decision-making of medical professionals. 
So um, issues about lying to patients and issues about um, futility of care that you're giving to patients, those types of issues. Uh, bioethics, well, bio means life, right? So ultimately, you can construe bioethics as the ethics of life, which can be from those professional ethical decisions to the ethics of um, genetically modified organisms that we eat every day because they too constitute life and, and the effects of those kinds of manipulations is part of bioethics. Um, research, right? Research on animals, research on people, that's part of bioethics. So again, I think I see medical ethics as a subset of a much larger discussion. And depending who you talk to, people may say that environmental ethics is part of bioethics. So it just depends where you draw the line, so to speak. They're all, re they're all somewhat related based on a, a way that a society or a person should uh, conduct their life. Yes, yes. And the question becomes... Um, the to whom, right? Some people would say ethics is just about human relationships. Other people might say, no, your relationship to animals in the world is incredibly ethical because they're sentient beings. They can experience pleasure and pain and how we treat them is significant. Um, your relationship to the environment, right? I have those little itty bitty ants in my kitchen and I'm in this quandary about whether or not to spray or not because I know that putting those sprays out into the environment isn't good for it. And yet I'm about, I've had it up to here with little ants in my kitchen. So, you know, that's an ethical issue for me because I take the environment very seriously and I know that my actions are going to affect it. Yes, absolutely. So who we are relating to or what we're relating to is at question as well. Uh, interesting. Let's talk about that for a second. So you as an ethicist, <laughs> I was going to say esthetician, but no, no. <laughs> completely different field that's, that's there. That's me. That's me. <laughs> we have an esthetician and an ethicist. Ethicist. Wow, yes, this is good. It would be easier if you were a moralist. I could say that easily. <laughs> I'm not a moralist, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, just so that all the people listening know, what happened to the ants? Well, the ants are still in the kitchen, but I'm calling Brown's extermination on Monday. <laughs> so are you using... Are so you, she doesn't have to do the DD. Yeah, so you're, you're using Brown's as an ethical consult? No, they're just going to spray and kill them. I'm doing my own ethical <laughs> consult. <laughs> um, yeah, so... It's a tough one for me. There, I heard this story, just a quick story. I'll try not, I won't take too long. I heard this story about a Buddhist monastery in um, the middle of Colorado somewhere where these um, monks realized they had roaches at the retreats they were doing. So there were roaches in the food and the salads. And they apparently went to their lama and they said, what should we do? Or, can we get roach motels and get, you know, this is funny to me, Buddhist monks asking if they can get roach motels and kill roaches. And the, their master said, I'm not going to tell you because that's what ethics is about. That's what the precepts in Buddhism are about. That's what life is about. You have to encounter these issues yourselves and you have to figure out what you're going to do. I'm not an authority figure, right? So again, I have struggled with these ants. I have sprayed soap. I have sprayed Windex. I have I've actually cleaned my kitchen. That didn't work either. So eventually, um, now I've decided to to spray. Yes. I guess helping 
once you know that cleaning your kitchen doesn't help, does that yeah. relieve you from future conditions like that? Um, I don't know that it'll relieve me from future conditions, <laughs> but I realize there's really nothing I can do to get rid of them apart from the spray. So I used it as a last uh, resort, as it were. Yes. All right, let's move on. Are cultures <laughs> different? Uh, do different cultures have different ethics? And the um, reason I'm asking that is especially nowadays, at least in this country, where many people from around the world show up at different hospitals and need various uh, treatments. Uh, and of course, when they're in a hospital in the United States, it's basically the ethics of the United States. Could people mm -hmm. come from another country and, and put their ethical systems into the match or the program? Um, yes, I would say, I don't know that the ethics is different. I think that cross-culturally, the basic ethical values are the same. Do not kill, do not steal people's things. Those sorts of ethical precepts are the same. What happens, however, is belief systems come into um, the morals or the belief systems come into um, a, a clash, as it were. So, for example, I heard of a case of um, people from Egypt came to the United States and their daughter had eye cancer. And in order to save her life, the doctor said, we're going to have to remove her eyes. And the parents said, absolutely not. Let her die. We won't take her eyes. And from a, from a perspective in the United States, that seems outrageous, right? Because you're going you're gonna to allow your daughter to die. But as they looked into the case more and more, what they realized was in their religious social belief system, um, the eyes are uh, your conduit to God. And if you don't have your eyes, when you die, God won't be able to see you and you won't be able to see your God, right? So again, the, there was this incredible struggle with that case. But the thing that I found so wonderful about that is at least when the decisions were made, people understood why people were, were doing what they were doing. It wasn't the case that uh, some were barbarians or some were um, neglectful parents right, which is what was said initially about this couple. So I think those belief systems come into uh, conflict all the time when we have cross-cultural um, communication. Yeah. How does that play out in a hospital? Somebody shows up, they, they make the diagnosis, they tell the parents, and the parents say no. Then mm -hmm. what's the next step in terms of where does the ethics committee come in or does it even come into this? Well, originally, if I recall, the, this was a long time ago, if I recall the case correctly, social workers stepped in and they were ready to go to the courts and get guardianship so that they could take care of the girl um, against the consent of the parents. What ended up happening was the ethics committee was also called at that time and discussion took place. They also brought in a religious person from the uh, belief system of this couple, and he sat down and talked with them, okay? As I recall, as I recall, um, basically he talked to them uh, about their own belief system and that it was not necessarily the case that they couldn't go through with the surgery. So I believe in the end there was some agreement reached, and this is really what ethics committees do and why they're so valuable, is that they enhance that communication between the medical professionals and the, the patients, but also they bring in other members of communities that can help 
all of us to understand not only the medical context, but the very belief and cultural systems from which we're coming. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful thing because you can take what seems like an impossible situation and through communication, you can begin to understand it better. And, and you no longer have a moral dilemma. You're no longer in an either or kind of position because those are the those are the problems we can't solve. <laughs> uh, so. Are the um, parents and and the child allowed to be on in any of these committees to speak their means, or is it just one person from a committee may come out and have a chat with them, or a social worker or a psychologist? Do they actually mm -hmm. get to come in and uh, present their case to a committee? In your experience, right, that happens if necessary. If that if it needs to go to that step, oftentimes what will happen, however, is there will be, and this isn't all the people on the ethics committee, but a number of the people on the ethics committee are trained to do individual consults. So they will go into the hospital. Um, sometimes uh, if patients are at home in hospice, they'll go into the home, right, to, to talk to patients and doctors. And they will, as individuals, uh, try to um, facilitate that communication. And the thing that they ask is not, what do you want, but why do you want it? And then they explore the why. And, and that's where the uncovering of values and fears and all of that takes place. So usually it's individuals that do it. However, if it is such a sticky and difficult situation, uh, people can come to the ethics committee as a whole. That has happened. But generally what happens is it's solved, and then the, the person who's done the consult brings it to the committee and says, here's what happened, and are we happy with this? And what can we learn uh, from this about future cases? So that's usually what happens. So, so Sharon, you know, as a layman uh, and as someone who was raised in different cultures, what happens? What happens if my choice is still like these parents um, and or I am the young woman and this is my choice. I am choosing not to follow through with, with what the committee would like me to follow through. What happens in the end? Well, at that point, and, and this was a question um, that Glenn and I had talked about before, the difference between law and ethics right? Mm. If we can't solve it ethically, it goes to the courts. Okay. So generally that's what happens. Generally that's what happens. If there's no, if it's an impasse and inevitably somebody ends up going into the court system. Wow. Yes. And at that point, I mean, the legal system and the ethical system, they're related, but they're different systems. There are laws that are unjust and ethics committees cannot make legally binding decisions, right? Mm -hmm. That's not our role. So, so basically, when there are impasses, usually the courts get involved. That tends to be what happens. Wow. wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I could remember a case when I was much younger about the young woman, a young woman who was hooked up and she was on life support and she was on life support mm -hmm. for years. And, mm -hmm. and I could remember uh, thinking to myself when the family wanted that all unhooked, that they actually had mm -hmm. to go to court. I'm going, yes. whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, this is like this, this poor thing has been an invalid attached to all this for mm -hmm. years, not living a life. And mm -hmm. yet they, the family had to fight in court yes. to have all this removed. I mean, and 
I guess to a layman, it just seems that is so wrong. That yes. Is, that is so wrong that we, it's already a difficult decision. Mm-hmm. And if we didn't have all this great technology in nature, we would pass. We would mm-hmm. transition and not go through the years of suffering. I mean, who, who is to say that this individual how slow that time ticks by for them as they lay in that bed year after year, completely not even able to communicate. Right? Absolutely. And so that, that balance is very difficult for me to understand. Mm-hmm. I oh, think absolutely. before Sharon actually gives her comment on that, for me, that's the whole reason we have an ethics uh, committee and ethics becomes part of it uh, mm-hmm. in the whole process. It's not always right, but it's an important aspect to have in all parts of medicine. Mm. Go, Sharon. Oh, I'm just thinking <laughs> Go, about Sharon. Go, Sharon. Go, Sharon. Go, go. Okay, here I go. Um, the technology that we have developed, um, as you say, uh, has caused so many ethical issues. Um, we're beginning to get comfortable well, we are very comfortable with withdrawing treatment at, at the time. And I think you're talking about the Cruzan case. Basically, at that time, the medical practitioners considered that murder because they were going to act in such a way that would stop her life. That's how they saw it. And they didn't want to violate that precept of do no harm. And they saw it as a violation of do no harm, which is the basic oath that doctors take. The first thing they say they will not do. Um, so through the decades, we've become more comfortable with withdrawing treatment. The last bastion at this point is the feeding tube. So the whole Shavo case in, in Florida, I don't know how many years ago that was, five or six years ago, um, she basically, they basically fought about whether or not to uh, withdraw her feeding tube. And the nurses and the doctors, again, if you talk to them about this, they say that withdrawing that basic nutrition, which is a natural thing that we need in order to live, that they had too much, um, that they were unable to um, uh, do that, right? To actually withdraw something because they said, this person's definitely going to die then. And I feel as if I've done something actively to cause that. Now, we may not agree with that, but from a practitioner perspective, food and water is different. Okay. So, so we're getting better though at withdrawing treatment, okay, and recognizing that we're not killing people, we're merely removing what we've put there before. What's happening now, however, is that we are over-treating, right? So we're having a little bit of a, a different issue now, which is don't even start treating people, right? That's really where we're at, I believe, and that's probably the biggest issue, especially around um, um, people who are terminally ill and what kinds of uh, machinery and technology they want used on them. People need to be very clear about what they want and what they don't want. And um, we have to find ways to ensure that medical professionals follow that. In a litigious society, it makes a lot of sense why doctors protect themselves and do everything that they can. But if you are very specific about what you don't want, and there is evidence of that, we could change that as well, I think. Yeah. Those are some of the advanced dire- directives and a number of things that you're talking about in that way. Is that mm-hmm. correct? 
Yes, it is. Exactly. And uh, making sure you have somebody who has medical power of attorney, somebody who is uh, capable and conscious and competent and can make those decisions for you, has the authority to sign the papers that say, no, don't resuscitate this person. No, don't put them on the respirator. Yeah. Let's talk about a couple of cases and, and see how the experience has worked out. Um, <clears throat> a pothole digger gets hurt and comes into the emergency department and needs surgery, right? Mm -hmm. And he's about to go to surgery. He's lost a lot of blood. And he, because he happens to be a Jehovah's Witness, says, do not give me any blood transfusions. Mm -hmm. So within that case, the surgeon immediately is tied down, knowing that without the transfusions, uh, he's not going, this patient may not do well. And then let's mm -hmm. add another part to it. Give me another part that you would add that make this even more interesting from a, from a uh, ethical point of view. Well, this is actually, I think, based on a real case that happened in Blacksburg and was transferred to UVA hospital. So the the, the next interesting part is that um, the father of the patient works in the hospital and is the head of uh, psychiatry in that hospital. And the, doc, the, the, the uh, father comes in and says, oh, that Jehovah's Witness stuff, that's just new stuff. Uh, just in the last year or two, it's not serious. Just give him blood, save my kid's life, right? A colleague says to a colleague, right, save my kid's life. So then what do you do? I'll put that one to you, Dr. <laughs> Woolman. <laughs> oh. I'm bouncing now. <laughs> that bouncing. Excellent, excellent. Well, uh, I will answer what I would do, and I will add another part to it. I've, I've had those situations before uh, working in the emergency department, but in the cases that I've had them, it's usually been a child that had mm -hmm. some kind of a, a hemorrhaging due to an accident or something, and it would be a child and the child was too young, not an emancipated child, and not one that was old enough to make their own decision. And the parents uh, did not want the child to have blood. And there was no doubt about it. The child would have died without a blood transfusion. There's nothing we could have done for this child. And it was the, a decision at that time through the medical staff where we decided to go past the parents and go for a court order to get blood for the child. And in this particular case, we did give the child blood and the, and the child lived. And I was not able to hear the rest of the story and how things moved on from there. That was a very difficult decision for us because we clearly wanted to honor the parents, but we also looked at a child and we didn't want to see that child die on our watch. Now, if I, if I had someone who was an adult that came in and told me not to uh, give them blood, that would be much more of a difficult decision for me because I would have to honor what that person is saying. But with the father coming in and giving me information where this is something new, if this was a lifelong philosophy that this person had, has had many experiences with that, and I've had conversations, I would have probably honored the, uh, the victim who didn't want the blood. But in this particular case, if we had some time might have had a discussion uh, with the son to see if we could talk him out of it and do everything we could. It would be very difficult to get a surgeon to come in and be uh, strapped with one hand behind their back 
knowing that they couldn't do all the things. What's the point of doing anything then? So what was the outcome? How did it work out? Well, the next phase to the story is that the the surgeon, who was just a resident, I guess, um, at the time, um, said, no, I'm not giving him blood. This person actually had a card in his wallet, which is a really good thing. If you want to donate organs, if you want anything to take place, put something in your wallet. So he had a card that said, don't give me blood. I'm a Jehovah's Witness. They found it in his wallet. They knew that it wasn't just a passing fancy. He took the trouble to get this um, document. So um, they found that card. They said no to the father. Uh, the head of surgery calls the doctor in the, or the surgeon in the um, emergency room or the surgery. And when somebody calls you in surgery, that's not a good, that's just never mm-hmm. a good thing because you're doing right. your job, right? And you know it's bad, but he answered the phone and the surgeon said, uh, give him blood. Right. He's there. You give him blood. And if you don't give him blood, I'm going to come down there and I'm going to hang it myself. Mm. And the doctor and remember, and I thought the doctor did a great job because he talked with the whole team too. none. None of them were comfortable giving this young man blood. JP was his his name. Um, So he said, if you come down and hang blood, this is his boss. Right. He said, if you come down and hang blood, he said, I'll sue you for assault because you're going to have to go through me. And basically, his uh, boss did not come down to the operating room. Uh, They ended up, what happened to JP was he lost his arms, and they didn't know if they could save his life without blood. They knew they couldn't reattach his arms without blood, so they ended up saving his life. And he is still a Jehovah's Witness today. He lives without his arms. His wife feeds him and cares for him. And a friend of mine, and actually the head of the Ethics Committee at Radford University, was with JP just a few years ago. He went to a conference that he was at, and he asked him, he said, if you had to do it all over again, what would you do? And JP said, I'd do exactly what I did. Uh, he said, excellent. my soul, my soul is more important than being able to feed myself, you know? So, yeah. Beautiful. Let's, let's stay on the upper extremities for a few minutes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> we have a, uh, another case where uh, a gentleman cuts off his own hand, mm-hmm. brings it into the emergency department, uh, shows it to the team there. And says, I don't want you to sew it back on. I just want you to sew up my wound. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what would happen in a case like that? Well, my Jonathan Webster, he calls these checkbook cases. Because no matter what you do, you're going to write a check. You're going to get sued. <laughs> and you're going to owe somebody a lot of money. Which is kind of freeing for an ethicist. Because the, the liability issues they're a moot point because you're going to pay somebody, right? So the question becomes, how do you treat this patient in the proper way? Um, In this case, I would, or I think um, individuals would make sure that you have a capable person. That's probably the first thing you would do because if somebody says, no, I don't want my hand attached, we question whether or not that's a truly autonomous or truly uh, a decision made from freedom and not from something else, right? Um, so I want to make just one point too. Um, competency is something that judges decide whether or not you're competent. But outside of the legal system, uh, in a hospital, there are ways to judge whether or not people are capable, so that's when you call, I guess you call psychiatry, if right. we're you. Correct. Right? Yes. And basically, they make sure that the person understands who they are, where they are, um, 
what is happening, what are the consequences of doing the surgery or not doing the surgery, right? And see if they really understand uh, what they're deciding uh, to do and the, and the consequences of it. So you call in psychiatry and see what happens. In, in this case, uh, the gentleman uh, had gone off of his meds, okay? Um, he was a very religious man, however. So when they asked him, why don't you want your uh, hand attached, he said, it says in the Bible, if your right hand makes you sin, cut it off. And he literally interpreted the Bible. And, and he said, so I cut it off. Now, compare that with the Jehovah's Witness. Are we dealing with the same kinds of rights to religious freedom? Are we dealing with somebody who is having an issue psychologically? In this case, it was a psychological issue. Apparently, he was on uh, medication. He came off of his medication, and this incident took place. So I think what they did was they ended up reattaching his hand once they understood that he was no longer capable. Mm -hmm. okay. So that's the outcome of that case. Makes sense to me. I would. Uh, I want to go maybe into the future a little bit. You alluded earlier about uh, genetically modified foods that we're all eating. Mm -hmm. As we see medicine going into the future, the genome has become very important. We're learning a lot more about why we do things and what part of the genetic system things happen. Mm -hmm. In the future, also, I see that many diseases are going to be treated not with necessarily an antibiotic or uh, a different medication, but through mm -hmm. genetically modifying our own genome. Mm -hmm. So do you see ethical issues going on there where we, we worry about genetically modified uh, foods that we're going to be eating, but now we're going to be considering genetically modifying humans? Where do you see the ethics is going to uh, come into this? Well, there's a variety of ethical issues. Uh, first of all, who's going to be able to... Um, heal themselves in this way, because as we know, these therapies are going to be very expensive, right? And so like anything new, um, ultimately the rich will get interventions and people that aren't able to afford it won't be able to get it. So that's always an issue when anything new comes out in, in medicine. With respect to genetics, I think the big issue, whether it's cloning or talking about medicine, is do we really know what we're doing? You know, and making a change what are the long-term effects of that change? I don't think that we know that. And I think some people say um, the risk isn't worth the benefits, the immediate benefits that we can see. So there's, there's that piece. Um, and again, genetics is not my strong point in terms of the different kinds of therapies and the ethics of that. But I think the, the unknown is incredibly important. I think also where genetics comes into place is when is something medically necessary and when is it cosmetic, right? And, and there's that line between um, um, yeah, necessary and not necessary. So, for example, I, we talked about um, genetic cases in my classes. And one of the things that comes up is that people say, well, you know, if you're taller, if you're a man and you're taller, you make more money. There's this correlation between size and money. It, with men, it doesn't work with women, but with men it does. So, so as a parent, in order to promote the well-being of my child, why wouldn't I want them to be eight inches taller, right? If that's going to be a positive effect in their life, 
why not change them in that way as well? So again, um, I think the people talk about the slippery slope. Once we start with medical intervention, where does it end, right? When do we say, well, that benefits the patient, but is making people taller? If that benefits them, can we do that? And those sorts of things. So, um, so there's lots of different issues that arise. Yeah. Speaking of height, uh, we have a <laughs> we have a case of uh, a family, a mother and father, that bring in a young daughter who's been diagnosed with a very severe neurological disease, and she presents to the doctor the request to put the child on hormones and remove their ovaries so that they don't grow anymore and they remain somewhat of a child in stature so that the family can take care of them more easily in their home. Right. So right. how do we deal with this? Well, this is actually, um, there's actually a treatment called the Ashley treatment. Uh, there are about 13 children in the United, or, well, we don't know if they live in the United States because they're trying to remain anonymous, which you can understand why. Um, ultimately, um, the, the original, as I read through these cases, the original justification was that they wanted to keep them home and care for them rather than putting them in a, into an institution. And as a mother, I understand that, right? As a mother, I was sympathetic with that. Um, on the other hand, when you hear, uh, if you go further into the justification, part of it was that the child would ultimately be better off, not because they were home, but because they wouldn't experience the discomforts of menstruation, uh, breast tissue, all of these sorts of things. So again, people um, have questioned whether or not that's truly against the best interest of a child to grow in those kinds of ways. Um, the other thing that has happened with cases like these is that disability rights groups have stepped up and said, if you are willing to uh, do this to individuals in these cases, to what extent do we change uh, people with disabilities in other kinds of cases, right? So they were concerned about the rights of the disabled, like does do the parents have the right to change, fundamentally change what this person is going to grow into for medical reasons or for reasons of taking care of them? So a lot of the disability rights uh, groups got involved in this case. And basically, like hospitals that have done this now have promised never to do it again. Right. So there was a big mm. backlash against that from the disability rights community and and I can understand that, right? Um, there's another case of, uh, a big case we talk about in professional ethics all the time is whether or not to give um, toddlers cochlear implants if they're deaf. Lots of parents who are hearing parents, uh, if they have a deaf child, they want to give them cochlear implants when they're young. There's some evidence to suggest that children do better with the cochlear implants if they're given to them at a younger age. Other people, like people at Gallaudet University and the deaf community, say that basically what you're doing is you're taking a special uh, aspect of this person, you're changing it, and you're going to be alienating them from their community, their natural community, the deaf community. Mm. Um, so it's very interesting to teach that in class because some students can't even begin to conceive why you wouldn't give them a cochlear implant. Of course, hearing is better than not hearing. But that's from the perspective of somebody who can hear, 
right? So the whole, I find the whole issue of disabilities in medicine, it's fascinating. And you always have to consider from what viewpoint am I judging this case, right? And uh, for the most part, I'm an able-bodied person. That's how I see the world. So to even get students or people to actually look at the world from that disabled, and again, it's defined vis-a-vis -vis people who are able-bodied, but I'll use the word disabled. Um, what's it like to live like that in our world, right? Um, I think that's fascinating. And that's a really challenging thing to teach, not only in class, but people in general. Yeah. It does seem to be. I'd like to shift over for a few moments and maybe we'll get back to a few more cases. But okay. we keep talking about medical ethics and the whole medical community. Is there an ethics for patients? Well, this is the thing I wanted to focus on at the end or sometime during this show. What I want people to know going away from this show today is that anybody can use the ethics committee. Okay, there are professionals who really don't think about calling consults because they're not necessarily aware of all the services that are available. But patients certainly don't know that if they have a, an ethical conflict with a practitioner, if they are in distress after a decision has been made because they're just not sure that they've done the right thing or uh, consented to the right thing, they should be calling in the ethics committee. That's what we're there for. And I also want them to know that, at least the people that I work with, we take the patient perspective as well. Okay, so even though we're the hospital ethics committee, we're there for patients. There are people on ethics committees that are from the community. It's not just a bunch of doctors who are going to decide what the right thing to do is. There are all sorts of people. It's a, a, a diversity of people on this committee. And if they have issues, they don't like the decisions, they're in distress, I want them to know that anybody can call a consult. That's what we're there for. That's and how, what we're how there do they for. do that? How do they do that? Um, they basically, well, first of all, I would talk to the people that you're arguing with, tell them we need to get the ethics committee in here, number one, or um, they can go to usually the, the chaplain of the hospital always has an office. Um, lots of times the chaplain is connected to the ethics committee in some way. So ultimately, um, yeah, go to the chaplain, um, go to the information desk at the front and find out who's head of the ethics committee and call them. Yeah. So there, there are different ways to do that within the hospital. But by all means, um, they need to take, take charge of this resource. Because, um, and I, generally I think healthcare prof professionals are caring, wonderful people. The people I work with, I'm just in awe of their capacity to care for people. But just like there are jerky professors, there are doctors who are not attentive to the needs of people sometimes. Um, so ultimately, um, sometimes patients really aren't listened to. Sometimes patients don't get okay. what they, I think they have a right to. So ultimately, um, yeah, patients need to know that's there for them. So when, you know, as, as the concept of being in an emergency department, we have, there are two different uh, ways that this can happen. One is a long term uh, where you have plenty of time for something. And the other mm -hmm. is in that mm -hmm. critical moment, you know, yes. you're trying to do something where, uh, you know, maybe two people came in to the emergency department at the same time 
a father and a son. I had a father and a son once. Uh, they were both uh, sign painters, and their ladder fell, and mm -hmm. both of them fell down. The, the son was speared uh, through his torso, mm -hmm. and the father had uh, neck injuries and multiple other injuries. The father was more conscious. He wanted us to spend more time on his son and not to work mm -hmm. on him, and he was almost belligerent about that. And we seemed to know that the son was not going to survive, and we wanted to spend more time with him. So we had to mm -hmm. uh, try and figure that out very quickly. It never came to an ethical issue, uh, but mm -hmm. you know, there's there's moments there that things can happen at any time. How does someone quickly make a decision? Someone's in an emergency department. And the family is there with uh, another family member, and they're not agreeing with the doctor. Can they do something at that point? Well, you're into triage medicine, right? Where right. Right. seconds count. Right. Um, as a medical professional, yeah, and this is a tough one. Part of me wants to. I'm not going to give you an easy one, Sharon. No, you're not going to give me an easy one, are you? I could have um, called for the assistant <laughs> professor for an easy one. <laughs> In that case, if it's an immediate case and you don't have the time to sort through and consult, I mean, who whoever has their their power of attorney at that point, or whoever is their surrogate at that point. As a doctor, I think you need to listen to them. Or as a, a ethicist, I think you listen to them. Um, the reason I say that is because the um, the prevailing model of ethics in medicine today is the Georgetown mantra. Have you heard of this before? The four principles that came out of Georgetown University in the 80s, autonomy, beneficence, non-malfeasance, and justice. And the way that the world operates and it's not necessarily a bad way, is that autonomy trumps. Autonomy means self-rule, right? That basically patients can make whatever decisions they want to, and even if we don't agree with them, and even if we think they're stupid, we still, we honor their autonomy, right? We do what it is that they consent to. And if they don't consent to it, we don't treat them, right? Um, if I were in triage situations, and I had someone who was autonomous and consenting, I would do what they said to do. Okay, if the surrogate said, do this, that's what I would end up doing. Now, is that the right thing to do? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, or you can take the Buddhist approach. I once was told that right before the Buddha died, all his followers were around him and, and they said, what are we going to do without you? And he's there, do your best. <laughs> and then he died. I don't know. I think somebody made that up. But, you know, you do your best within the context, right? You do your best within the context. Um, as far as I understand, there are also triage rules, like emergency rules within um, uh, hospital policy, right? Where Correct. you evaluate who's most likely to survive. And I'm actually doing a reading group about Hurricane Katrina right now and the sort of emergency protocols that were put into place when all the norms of society dropped away and they still had patients at Memorial Hospital and had to treat them, right? So in those kinds of situations, the rules change a little bit, but there are emergency plans and triage plans that hospitals are supposed to have uh, in those kinds of cases. So that's another place to go as we, well. We do have those. Uh, mm -hmm. I want to ask you, do you see, a, what's the future of ethics? Does ethics change over time? 
Uh, how do you see ethic, ethics playing out in the future as something maybe becoming more uh, of a partner in all of medical decisions? We don't usually talk about ethics when we go see the doctor and decide on this new procedure or not a new procedure. That It very rarely comes up. Do you see that staying the same or do you think changes? Well, I think as I think as patients become more aware, I think ethics is going to intercede or um, enter into um, other areas of medicine. So, for example, um, in the Carilium system, for example, if you are having an ethical issue and it's not in the hospital, it's with a family practitioner or it's with a surgeon, right, in his office. Mm -hmm. Anywhere within the Carilion system, you can call an ethics consult. You can talk to somebody on the ethics committee. We're always available to people. I think that people don't understand their resources at this point. Um, they under, they're starting more and more to understand the medical resources, perhaps, home health care. You know, maybe there's more understanding of those types of things that you can bring into the home. But in terms of ethics, we have so much education to do. But I think the Internet is, as we see in the show, right, it's a wonderful resource. I think as people become more aware, um, ethics will enter into other kinds of decisions besides the emergency room situations that, you know, we've talked about today. Yeah. We're speaking with Dr. Sharon Hartline, who is a full professor of philosophy and teaches ethics and applied ethics, bioethics and medical ethics uh, in Virginia. And we're coming to the end of the show, and I wanted to know if you have a health tip for us. Well, I kind of let my health tip out of the bag earlier, <laughs> which was about the ethics committees. Um, I, I want people to know that um, ethics committees are there for everyone. Um, there are a lot of medical, or a lot of um, times when patients come into the medical system and they're incredibly intimidated. And I don't know, I don't know that doctors remember that on a day-to-day -day level because you're just doing your job and doing it the best that you know how. But being in a medical setting, being in that foreign atmosphere, being around people who are talking about things you don't understand and then trying to bring them down to your level of non-medical language and explain them, um, it's an incredibly intimidating, intimidating um, process. So any time that you have a problem and you don't like a decision, don't sit back and accept it. And I've seen, I've heard so many friends talk about situations of friends or their own situations where they said, oh, if I had only X, Y, and Z. And I don't want anyone to ever regret not stepping in and at least exploring whether or not that was the right decision to be made. So there's that. And then the other thing I want to suggest is like use those preventive health benefits in your insurance policy because mm. preventing being in that situation I'm again I, I like preventive ethics staying healthy is actually a form of preventive ethics as far as I'm <laughs> concerned so you don't get into those uh, particular um, scenarios and you don't have to deal with those that the dilemma like problems that are so hard to solve yeah so stay healthy and that's kind of a kind of a circular argument there. Your, my health tip is to stay healthy, but it's truly the case. Yeah. I wouldn't call it an argument, though. Uh, okay. I, I have uh, two other things that I wanted to uh, bring up. One, what's being taught to medical students in terms of ethics? And mm -hmm. second, 
in your preparing for this uh, show today, is there anything that you wanted covered and brought up that we did not bring up? Ah, hmm. Well, I think medical ethics is taught in many different ways in many different universities. Um, I think what a lot of the courses, however, do is to try to give them a sense of the broad range of issues that arise. So um, resource allocation, huge one. Um, whether or not you should lie to patients, huge one. Um, how do you present information? How do you ensure that people are really informed when they're consenting? Right. So I think a lot of what medical ethics does, and this is certainly what I do when I teach it, is to sensitize professionals to um, the context in which people are coming into these these systems. So cultural sensitivities, like cultural, what do they call it? Um, cultural, there's a word for it. Anyway, cultural sensitivity is cultural competency. That's what they call it, right? Cultural competency is coming more and more into professional education so that people have an understanding of the cultures they're going to interact with. Um, understanding what it's like to be impoverished and not have health care and how do you work with Medicaid patients who are not in your same socioeconomic level. and Those kinds of things, those sensitivity uh, training parts are coming in more and more. And I think they're really important. I do a lot of that in my classes as well. So um, I think it depends on the medical school, but I think that's part of what they're being taught today. You know what I loved was your term, because you talked about ethical emergencies. Mm -hmm. you, when, when you look at um, uh, ethics literature, there's emergency ethics. There's a lot of writing about emergency ethics, but what constitutes an ethical emergency? I thought that was a brilliant wording. So... Um, the ethical emergency, like the one you talked about in the emergency room, when there's not enough time, triage ethics, a lot of people talk about that as well. But how do you know when you have an ethical emergency in the sense that you need to call an ethics committee? Well, when I thought of ethical emergencies, I thought of how does one know one is in the middle of one? And I thought of negative emotional states because lots of times we have golden opportunities in front of us, but because we don't like the experience we're having, we try to push it away, especially in ethics. Like we have this view that we should, you know, we have to stay calm, cool, and collected because emotions are going to interfere with our rational decision-making. And to some extent, that's a good thing to do. However, when we are angry from an ethicist point of view, that's a good that's a good thing it's or not a good thing it's an opportunity because it says that something that you hold dear is being violated so to me that's an ethical emergency and it's at those times when we can say to ourselves okay this is serious and obviously i'm not able to do this by myself so where can i get assistance and that's where ethics committees come in so that was my final point Speaking with Dr. Sharon Hartline, a professor of philosophy and an educator in the field of applied ethics, medical ethics, and bioethics. And we would like to thank her for being a part of our show today, sharing her expertise and wisdom with us, especially on our 100th show, which we're very excited about. And we're about to pop a bottle of champagne to celebrate. But before I do that, I also want to thank my teachers and my healers to allow me to go on the journey that I'm on. I want to definitely thank all of the people at Yoga Hub, Christina and Segovia, 
for doing such a wonderful job for this last uh, 99 episodes and now this 100th. So thank you so much for all that you do. And to all of our viewers that nominated us for an award, uh, we will continue to look forward to our 200th show. And uh, maybe we'll have you back on to see how we did, Sharon. So everybody, right. until next week, when we search another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy, I want to say thank you again, Sharon Hartline. And also, I wish you all optimal health. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you so much, Sharon, for joining us today and sharing with us your expertise. That was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it very <laughs> much. Thank you. And of course, to each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're always grateful for your continuous support and look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. We invite you to connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman on his website, glennwoolman.com, where we encourage you to learn about his metaphor square breath and to keep up on everything that is happening with him. He is uh, going in deep into the cyberspace world here. And of course, um, uh, to uh, send us any questions and, or comments to our guests or Dr. Woolman, uh, you can scroll down and leave it on the screen or you can call us at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. So I would usually say until next time, but not yet, because we still have to open that bottle of champagne. <laughs> okay, Doc, I know what's up. You've got to pop the cork. <laughs> when I was in the emergency department, I would always have to take care of a lot of people that were trying to pop a cork, and that cork would come flying out, and usually I would end up stitching up somebody's face. Well, that, oh, you, can put, you can put the towel over it. <laughs> We, can't, we don't want to lose any of the lights. <laughs> Ooh, very nice. It is open, and uh, I don't know. <laughs> I have uh, a little glass here that I'm going to share. And while I'm pouring this, uh, I also want to mention that if you go to my website, glennwallman.com, and go down to the bottom on the home page and subscribe, you will get much more information. We'll tell you about our shows, upcoming shows, and we'll be able to converse a little more. And you will also get that uh, as a gift for subscribing. You'll get a specific instruction video on that metaphor, the Wallman metaphor square breath that Christina always alludes to. So to all of our, all of our viewers and to Yoga Hub and to you, Christina, many <laughs> blessings. Thank Cheers. you, Dr. Woolman, for being such uh, the leader of Magical Medical Tour. And uh, <sighs> thank you, thank you to all of you for supporting us through these last few years. And let's continue the great work. Blessings to all. Namaste. Salute. <laughs> that was easy. <laughs>
and we use whole artichokes in the process, not just the heart. And a lot of the phytonutrients and those good antioxidants that people don't get are actually in the outer portion of the artichokes. So we use lemon, apple, uh, mint in the processing, um, and it gives a really nice complex uh, flavor profile of sweetness through monk fruit on the beginning end with apple, 